Welcome to the Reorg Primary Review, where we cover the latest developments in high-yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy, and feature discussions on issues affecting distressed debt, leveraged finance, direct lending, high-yield bonds, high-yield municipals, covenants, private credit, and middle market companies. I'm David Zupkis. This week, Wade Weems, a partner at McGovern Weems, a business defense law firm whose practice focuses on helping executives, corporate boards, company founders, and entrepreneurs manage regulatory risk and government action, talks with Reorg's Maria Abreu about the complexities of navigating Venezuela's ever-changing sanctions landscape and legal strategies for businesses navigating these developments. And as always, we bring our weekly summary of interesting developments in the restructuring world, as well as a preview of what's on tap for next week. We'd like to hear your feedback to help us improve the podcast experience, so please take a moment to complete the short survey at the link attached to this podcast and let us know how we're doing. It's Monday, January 22nd. Welcome back to another episode of the Reorg Primary View podcast. I'm Maria Breu, a reporter in the LATAM Distress Debt team, and I'm pleased to have Wade Weems as our guest. Wade is a partner at McGovern Weems, a business defense firm that helps executives, corporate boards, company founders, and entrepreneurs manage regulatory risk as well as advise clients adversely impacted by government action. Before we dive into our conversation, let's take a closer look at the topic for today. Venezuela finds itself at a crucial juncture, responding to both domestic and international pressures after the U.S. Treasury suspended select sanctions against Venezuela in October, on the condition that President Nicolás Maduro allows international observation of the presidential elections that will be held in 2024. Since then, Venezuela's government and opposition have introduced a procedure to review the disqualification measures preventing certain opposition candidates from holding public office. Now, aspiring presidential candidates must personally appear before the Venezuelan Court of the Supreme Justice. The White House has been closely monitoring these developments. John Kirby, the national security spokesperson, welcomed the appeal process for opposition candidates, but emphasized that Venezuela must make progress on releasing detained Americans and the warning of freezing relaxed sanctions still stands. Wade's federal prosecution experience in sensitive national security matters positions him uniquely to guide us through the complexity of navigating Venezuela's ever-changing sanctions landscape, especially for companies in the oil sector. Welcome, Wade. We're glad to have you here today. It's great to be here, Maria. Thank you. So let's dive in. Your background includes um, service as a DOJ prosecutor and U.S. State Department official. So how do these experiences inform your counsel and defense strategies for corporations and individuals that are facing government investigations? Well, first of all, th thanks very much for having me, Maria. And um, I, I spent a good bit of time at the Department of Justice, both in the criminal fraud section we focused uh, primarily on bribery and corruption, FCPA issues, and then also in the National Security Division, which enforces a, an array of U.S. national security laws, including U.S. sanctions and export controls. And, and of course, that experience gave me um, a lot of insight into the U.S. regulatory and enforcement processes and the kinds of matters that, that take priority for prosecutors in, in those sections. And, and in sort of the second phase of my legal career in private practice, um, you know, I've been able to use that experience at DOJ in representing clients and in investigations, um, you know, before U.S. regulatory agencies, as well as as the Department of Justice. Um, I spent a, a good bit of time with the 
a global law firm in their Shanghai office and had a front row seat to shifting national security priorities on the part of the U.S. vis-a-vis China and, and our commercial relationship with with China. And I saw how that affected U.S. and, and Chinese clients. Um, so, you know, those those help those experiences certainly help uh, inform the advice that I, I give to clients now. And even prior to my law career, I, I was in the U.S. military and then also at the U.S. State Department. And it's also been helpful to, to have a perspective on, on the priorities of those agencies and the roles that they play um, in the interagency process, especially with regard to national security laws. That's a fascinating journey. So how does your experience involving um, U.S. regulatory agencies and international organizations play a role in, you know, negotiating these settlements on behalf of clients? Well, certainly the substantive experience of, of having worked in, um, you know, at, at the Department of Justice um, is, is crucial. I mean, just the substantive knowledge of the law, what it takes for a prosecutor to put a, a case together, how prosecutors interact with regulatory agencies, you know, when a, an investigation that say the Treasury Department related to sanctions violation reaches its criminal threshold and becomes uh, a matter for the FBI and the Department of Justice uh, to pursue. Um, these sort of thresholds and these, these priorities and standards are, are, are hugely helpful um, from, from a substantive matter in handling you know, complex government investigations or enforcement actions, internal investigations across a pretty broad array of, of criminal law from SCPA to national security, et cetera. Um, then in private practice, you know, having experience at the in front of international organizations like the World Bank, and then in front of the Commerce and Treasury Department again, um, you know, I think just this sort of collective experience has helped me, especially with regard to, to national security related matters, including sanctions and export control, because the U.S. government talks a lot these days about a whole of government approach, a multi-agency approach to, to, to many of these matters. And Venezuela is a great example, I think, where, where the interests of many agencies are at play, um, you know, diplomatic and national security interests um, affect uh, the U.S. government decision-making process, and having an understanding of of those interests, which are are sort of primary at any given time. Sometimes those interests are competing, and understanding in any given situation on behalf of a client what the real core goal or interest of of the U.S. government is, really helps the representation of them before you know any particular agency understanding how to convince the U.S. government that you can mitigate those concerns or take care of that core concern that they have um, is, is how, to, how we help move clients' interests forward. Um, so it's been, it's been crucial, that sort of multi-agency experience um, that I've had over the course of, been lucky enough really to have over the course of my career. Great. And um, I now wanted to move on to the current scenario in Venezuela. Um, so as you know, OFAC has issued a license permitting four U.S. companies to engage 
in certain transactions involving Venezuela state oil company PDVSA. So how much do you think that the issuance of such licenses impact the operations and strategies of other U.S. companies in the oil and gas sector? Well, significantly, in short. And, um, you know, it's the sort of to take one step back, we've seen sort of the arc of U.S. policy here shift. Obviously, we were sort of under what was maximum sanctions pressure, maximum pressure under the Trump administration. And I think the Biden administration signaled that they were going to step away from that, you know, from the early days. And in 2022, issued a, a few limited general licenses for certain companies to resume operations um, in in Venezuela, um, limited oil extraction operations and other maintenance types of operations. Um, and and you know that was a lead up to the really more remarkable um shift in October, which essentially eased sanctions on Venezuela um, more much much more broadly in exchange for commitments um, by the Maduro government um to you know especially with regard to future elections um in Venezuela. And you know these are temporary shifts. You know the the US government has the authority and has set out a marker to to amend or revoke or lift um you know the these new authorizations if if the maduro government doesn't meet um certain standards but but it is a pretty remarkable change and and you know it's, it's several different areas you know there's a there's um you know, transactions um, with Venezuela state-owned gold mining uh, company. There's transactions related to um, the unrestricted secondary market trading in in Venezuelan sovereign bonds and certain debt and equity that has been issued by PDVSA, the the state-owned oil company. Uh, but obviously, the the most significant is General License Forty Four, which now authorizes all transactions related to oil and gas operations in Venezuela that would have otherwise been prohibited up to that point. Um, and that includes transactions with PDVSA, um, as well as then um, it allows those transactions that are necessary, uh, those financial transactions that are necessary to conduct those operations with certain blocked Venezuelan banks. So it's a it's a really um you know significant sea change there. And and as you point out, Maria, that that creates a lot of very challenging strategic questions right now. I mean uh, Venezuela is obviously, especially in the oil and gas industry, a lucrative market. It's been under service for a number of years because of the really wide-ranging sanctions that have been imposed. Um, there's a lot of opportunity there, but uh, as you point out, there's also a lot of risk. Um, and, you know, the risk is a potential change, a potential reversal. Um, uh, there's a there's still, you know, significant sanctions overlay. It's a very complex sanctions environment. Um, so these companies really need to um, way whether or not the opportunity is is worth the risk and do a very 
diligent and careful job of assessing and mitigating that risk before they step into that market. That makes sense. And the U.S. is, you know, warning about a sanction snapback, which adds another layer of complexity. What advice would you provide to businesses operating in Venezuela or considering investments in the country? Um, right. What legal considerations, you know, should companies be aware of? Yeah, it's, it's uh, as I indicated a moment ago, it's, you know, there are multiple layers of complexity here. Um, and this is characteristic of any sanctions regime, but especially as one, one that is um, as complex and longstanding as, as, as the one related to Venezuela. But, you know, these involve political factors, national security factors, as well as as legal factors. And, you know, there's a there's certainly um, uncertainty related to the snapback or the potential, you know, snapback. But the lifting of the sanctions services multiple U.S. geopolitical goals. It's, you know, it's 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 granted a fresh oil supply uh, into Europe at a time when, um, you know, Russian supply has obviously been cut uh, and OPEC production is down. And that's a crucial new resource um, which serves U.S. interests. It it will likely significantly improve the Venezuelan economy, which may ease migration flows that have been. Um, very heavy coming up from Venezuela into the United States. You know, just recently, um, you know, we had, I think, 10 um, U.S. citizens released from Venezuela, as well as a fugitive, uh, Leonard Francis, who was related to the U.S. Navy bribery scandal, um, was brought back to the United States uh, in sort of part and parcel of this agreement. So, so there's a lot going on in terms of how this benefits the U.S., and it's very difficult to predict, you know, which of those interests is most important and going to win the day. Of course, at, at the end of the day, the, the, the conditions that were imposed upon uh, the Maduro government in terms of free and fair elections um, are also there. But, but to, from my perspective, um, you know, the agreement is a little bit ambiguous. What are the benchmarks? What are the actual um, sort of achievements that have to be hit, the milestones that have to be reached? It's not so clear. It's, it seems like it's going to be a bit subjective as to whether, um, you know, Venezuela, whether the Maduro uh, government reaches, um, you know, what is what, what the U.S. expects them to reach in terms of this this agreement. And, you know, that ambiguity, you know, along with these other factors creates a lot of uncertainty. Um, and just to, just to sort of take one step back from Venezuela, this is against uh, much broader uncertainty related to sanctions policy in the United States in general. I mean, we've seen these, these very sudden and radical shifts, you know, now vis-a-vis Venezuela, but we saw President Trump ramp up enforcement in China uh, during his administration for export controls and sanctions. Um, that was a that was a significant sea change. President Trump also snapped back the JCPOA with Iran, which 
which was a, a radical, a radical change. And, you know, 2024 is an election year and it, it itself creates uncertainty about what the next administration might do, no matter what the Biden administration does in the coming 12 months. Um, and so, you know, uncertainty is not not great for business. Um, it, it's very hard to assess all of these different factors um, and make good business decisions about um, about about what you know, what the environment is now, what's allowable now, but what might be allowable in six months or 12 months from now. So, you know, my advice would be obviously you know, to monitor those factors as carefully as possible, to, to use contacts to understand which way, um, you know, the wind is blowing in terms of even these general licenses and whether they'll remain in place or be snapped back. Um, but always to have contingency plans in place, um, whether a, a, a company that may have been out of Venezuela as a result of maximum pressure under the Trump administration is, is contemplating re-entry, um, you know, maybe so, but, but need to have these contingency plans in place should these restrictions that have been lifted um, be reimposed either by the Biden administration or a future administration um, and sort of make the kinds of decisions and preparations for worst case scenarios in advance. Um, and a lot of lessons can be drawn from companies that, you know, experience the snapback of the JCPOA or the the sudden broad imposition of Russia uh, of sanctions vis-a-vis -vis Russia. Um, there's a lot of lessons to be drawn from from those experiences. Got it. And, and you already uh, alluded to this, but um, besides contingency plans and, and being on top of the situation, are there any other precautionary measures that businesses, particularly in the oil sector, um, should consider? Do you have any other advice on compliance and monitoring? Well, I think the first, you know, it's well, it's important to note that, you know, these new general licenses and authorizations are um, a significant expansion um, of the of the types of transactions that are now allowable across gold and debt and equity and certainly oil and gas sectors of the Venezuelan economy um, but it, it, they're not carte blanche and they're not you know um, it's not sort of a free-for-all they're just still a very complex sanctions environment. And there are Im important limitations that are in place, even as to these general licenses. You know, for example, you have you know General License Forty Four related to the oil and gas industry. Um, you know, has a specific precaution related to dealing with um, any entity that's owned or controlled, um, you know, by an entity located in the Russian Federation. Um, or new investment related to the oil and gas sectors, um, you know, that might that might have a link to a person located in the Russian Federation. So you have these sort of interlocking sanctions regimes, Russia and Venezuela, that that any company has to be very, you know, mindful of. You know, there's there's you know specific provisions that do not authorize transactions involving new debt. Um, so, you know, for example, like the provision of loans to, say, PDVSA, unless it's directly related to the payment of 
previous invoices um, or satisfying debt uh, via the delivery of oil and gas. So there are there are certainly restrictions in place in these general licenses, and and companies need to be very very mindful of of those guardrails um, that they need to have in place to 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 make sure that they're you know if they're they're heading into the market they're taking advantage of the the lifting of restrictions you know they're they're, they're um, in potentially a very lucrative position there but um, they still need to be very careful and very mindful of these of these of these other uh, restrictions that still remain in place so they need to understand the details of of these general licenses, the limitations of them, they need to continue to conduct and maybe even, you know, more carefully and more deeply conduct their due diligence. Um, you know, they, of course, it's a mantra now related to sanctions, but, but to have a strong compliance program um, that is tailored um, to this new environment um, and this changing environment. Um, all of those are, are, are are crucial, I think. And and I'm also curious to know um, how do U.S. national security laws come into place in advising clients and uh, on transactions and investments related to Venezuela? Do you see any specific challenges arising from um, the intersection of national security laws and the recent developments in the country? Do you, I I think I just allude back to my earlier comments, which is you know that it. This space, the national security law space, is, is is extremely unpredictable for some of the reasons I mentioned earlier, and complex for that same reason because there are you know, there are there are, there's there's a there's such a political and geopolitical element to the way that they develop and the way that they're enforced. Um, you know, you even now you have members of Congress objecting to these you know, the lifting of these restrictions into the Biden administration policy. Um, you obviously have, have critics of this approach and those who are, frankly, uh, expecting or maybe even hoping that, that this approach fails. Um, all, all of this and the broad discretion that, you know, say the Treasury Department has in creating and imposing these sanctions um, makes it a very uh, unpredictable environment and i'd say you know to my comments about the compliance program and due diligence and the like you really can't just focus on the sanctions either the the interlocking of sanctions with first of all other sanctions regimes russia for example uh, as well as u.s export control laws increasingly it's becoming um you know what used to be these sort of separate disciplines, export control and sanctions and other U.S. national security laws um, increasingly are becoming enmeshed and coordinated and, and, and companies need to view them the same way and craft their compliance programs um, and their due diligence and their risk analysis um, accordingly. So it's, um, it's, a, it's a unique practice area and a challenging practice area. Um, and uh, and and it creates a unique and challenging um, business environment for companies that are operating places like Venezuela. And as as we wrap up the conversation, um, 
wanted to to get any more general advice on businesses in the oil sector, but also um, other other sectors on how they could um, prepare for potential developments, especially in, in 2024 with the upcoming elections. I think, um, you know, businesses that, that are, you know, sort of making these difficult assessments about which way this will go in the coming months or year, um, I think, I guess my advice would, would be just to be wary also of, of, um, the idea that that this this sanctions regime is getting a lot of attention, and um, I think that the you know the, the sort of specific parameters in place will will be enforced carefully, and I think that you know companies need to be mindful that that the U.S. government and Treasury Department, OFAC, uh, for example, in this instance. Um, you know, receive information in a variety of different ways. Uh, the, the sort of new Treasury Department AML and sanctions whistleblower program, for example, I think is is growing in size and scope and creates risk uh, for companies um, to, through the whistleblower programs there that can report sanctions violations or alleged sanctions violations. Also, we've seen, especially in these in, in these um, heavily commercial environments, where you know there's a lot of a lot of interest in re-entering the market and participating in the market, but there's also a lot of sanctions risk in that market. We see, you know, sometimes information comes from commercial competitors provided to OFAC alleging a sanctions violation by another company um, by one of their competitors. Um, sometimes that information is maybe a little bit one-sided, uh, not fair to the, to the target company. Um, but, you know, companies need to be aware that, that it's, a you know, it's a, it's, it's almost as though the sanctions regime is itself another aspect of the competitive marketplace. And, um, and they need to be aware that OFAC gathers information from a multitude of, of sources, including perhaps and even um, competitors there, um, and, and be wary of that potential exposure um, as well. So there's a lot of risk, and and some of those avenues, um, you know, of information flow into OFAC, in some ways magnify uh, that sanctions risk. These are all great insights, Wade. Thank you for shedding light on the legal strategies that oil sector businesses can employ amid these developments in Venezuela. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Maria. Thank you for having me. For in-court coverage this week, we take a look at FTX Group, Wesco Aircraft, Diamond Sports Group, and Small Direct Club. A three-judge panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit issued an opinion last week directing the appointment of an examiner in the FDX Group Chapter 11 cases, reversing Judge John Dorsey's February 2023 bench ruling, finding that he had discretion to deny the Office of the UST's request for an examiner. According to the panel, bankruptcy courts lack discretion to deny appointment of an examiner upon request by any party in interest in cases involving more than $5 million in debt. The decision could have major repercussions for large Chapter 11 cases in Delaware, New York, and other Third Circuit jurisdictions. Under the panel's reasoning, any individual creditor can automatically secure appointment of an examiner and a public examiner report in any sizable case on demand. On Sunday, January 14th, Judge Marvin Isger issued a 58-page ruling on the summary judgment motions in the Westco Aircraft and Core litigation challenging the debtor's 2022 up-tier exchange. 
In a split ruling, the judge narrows the open issues, dismissing several claims while leaving the bulk of the key issues in the litigation unresolved and poised to move forward to trial. At a hearing on Thursday, January 18th, Judge Marvin Isger deferred ruling on the Wesco and Cora 2024-2026 formally secured note holders motion for sending to avoid or subordinate first lien claims created in the up-tier exchange, allowing the parties to work on a stipulation to push the standing issue until after trial on the validity of the up-tier transactions. On Wednesday, the Diamond Sports Group debtors announced a restructuring support agreement with more than 85% of the company's first lien debt holders, more than 50% of its second lien debt holders, and more than 66% of its unsecured bondholders. The restructuring term sheet contemplates several financing transactions that would allow DSG to emerge as a standalone company financed by consenting creditors with the equity held by existing creditors and dip lenders. Debtors have terminated their cooperation agreement upon entry into the RSA. In conjunction with the RSA, the debtors also disclosed a strategic partnership and investment with Amazon and a $495 million settlement of its $1.5 billion fraudulent transfer lawsuit against Sinclair, Bally's Corp., and J.P. Morgan entities. Pursuant to the RSA, creditors would fund the reorganization with $450 million of new dip financing on a junior-secured super-priority basis, backstopped by the Paul Hastings-represented ad hoc cross-holder group. Last Thursday, trial began the Smile Direct Club debtors' motion for approval of a Section 363 credit bid sale of their assets to dip lenders and the structured dismissal of the Chapter 11 cases, a part of the global settlement with the dip lenders and the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors. The proposed sale and structured dismissal are opposed by arbitration counterparty and former competitor Align Technologies, Prepetition Administrative Agent, HPS Investment Partners, the Ad Hoc Committee of Convertible Note Holders, and the U.S. Trustee, who argued the cases should be converted to Chapter 7. Dish Network, EchoStar, JetBlue, Spirit Airlines, Accent Care, Loperex, Unifin, Petro Peru, and Graftic International round out this week's crop of near-term restructurings and refinancings and new coverage names. Following its announcement of a series of strategic internal transactions, EchoStar, the new parent company of Dish Network, launched two separate coercive exchange offers, one targeting Dish Network Corp's 2025 and 2026 convertible notes, and another attempting to address Dish DBS Corp's outstanding unsecured notes. An ad hoc group of dish note holders that organized with Milbank and Lazard is said to have accumulated about $11.5 billion of bonds. The ad hoc group is in the process of signing a cooperation agreement according to sources. Judge William G. Young of the U.S. District Court of Massachusetts issued an opinion on Tuesday, January 16th, blocking JetBlue's proposed $3.8 billion acquisition of Spirit Airlines. The 113-page decision largely sides with the U.S. Department of Justice, which argued that the merger would substantially lessen competition in the airline industry in violation of the Clayton Act. The company said they are evaluating next steps. Spirit's cash burn, however, has raised questions about the company's visibility. As of December 31, 2023, Spirit had approximately $1.3 billion of liquidity against more than $250 million of cash burn in the third quarter of 2023. Based on preliminary fourth quarter results released last week, another $250 million of cash will be burned in the fourth quarter. Accent Care is working with advisors to assess balance sheet options and engage with lenders. An ad hoc group of lenders have also organized with a structuring advisor in preparation of potential liquidity needs and maturities in 2026. Release liner manufacturer Loperex is engaged in restructuring talks with its lenders as the company faces near-term maturities and a liquidity shortfall. A requisite majority of creditors of Mexican non-bank lender Unifin voted to approve a restructuring proposal presented by the company earlier this month. Petróleos del Peru or Petro Peru investors are monitoring news about financial support the company could receive from the state, its main shareholder, amid questions about the government's willingness and ability to help the indebted energy company. 
Vertically integrated graphite electrode producer Graftex profitability and cash flows are anticipated to come under pressure as its lucrative take-or-pay long-term agreements, or LTAs, conclude, leaving it vulnerable to depressed market pricing for its products. Although performance over the last 12 months was adversely affected by an unexpected forced shutdown of its Monterey, Mexico facility, 2024 could be equally challenging as management said that it is expecting an over 50% year-over-year reduction in LTA volumes and revenue. While the company's liquidity provides some runway, particularly since its notes not mature until 2028, it could seek additional financing as either a liquidity buffer or for capital investments, particularly if the opportunities in the lithium-ion battery space for electric vehicles appear sufficiently attractive. Top red stories this week included, Sereno shareholder contends Latham M3 leveraged Freeman's relationship with former Judge Jones to improperly transfer cases, gained back-channeled court, Reorganized Exco Resources looks to revive Chapter 11 case to claw back over 1 million of Jackson Walker fees, expanding fallout from Jones' resignation. Global Liability Management Quarterly. Lumen TSA kicks off process. Fisker up tiers converts two months after issuance. Continued stress in China real estate among private state-linked developers. Georgia State Court denies Lucky Buck's successor art gaming motion for a temporary restraining order and conspiracy suit against founder Damani other former employees. And now here's Kate Thomas from New York with The Week Ahead. Welcome to The Week Ahead. My name is Kate Thomas, and here are a few highlights from the upcoming week. A longer schedule of the week's events can be found on the Rear website under America's Week Ahead. After an adjournment on Friday due to weather, Binance will seek dismissal of the SEC's enforcement action on Monday. The SEC alleges that the crypto exchange and its co-defendants, including co-founder Changping Zhao, offered unregistered digital asset securities to subvert federal securities laws and profit off U.S. investors. Binance asserts that crypto tokens like Bitcoin are not securities under existing laws because they lack key features of investment contracts and are therefore outside the jurisdiction of the SEC. Then on Tuesday, Judge Marvin Isker may rule on the Wesco and Cora 2024-2026 noteholders standing motion to avoid or subordinate first lien claims created in the debtor's 2022 up-tier exchange transaction. At a hearing last week, Judge Isker deferred ruling in order to allow the parties to work on a stipulation to push the standing issue until after the trial challenging the 2022 transaction. Parties must file any agreement they reach by 1 p.m. Eastern on Tuesday, Otherwise, Judge Isker will issue his ruling later that afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern. The trial challenging the validity of the 2022 transaction is then scheduled to get underway on Thursday. 2024-2026 formally secured noteholders and 2027 unsecured noteholder Langer Mays assert that the transaction left their notes virtually worthless when a subset of lenders up-tiered their unsecured notes for no consideration. The challengers say that as a result, the transaction breached their respective indentures and violated their sacred rights. The debtors maintained that the 2022 transaction complied with the indentures, was a privately negotiated exchange, and also provided necessary liquidity to the pandemic-hit aircraft business. Last up, two confirmation hearings are scheduled for next week, Pennsylvania Real Estate Investment Trust on Monday and Amherst on Wednesday. That's it for now. For more on the week ahead, check out America's Week Ahead on the Reorg website and have a great week. Thank you again for tuning in to the Reorg Primary Review and our weekly review. Find all our podcasts on the Reorg.com webinars and podcast page as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Take care and see you all next week.